This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey there everybody and welcome to this video on processing emotions through journaling. This is part of the 52 Skills Everyone Needs series and I'm your host Dr. Donnelly Snipes. Let's start out at the beginning. What are emotions? In order to process them we ought to know what we're talking about. Every moment you're aware of stimuli in your environment. Things that you feel, smell, see, hear, you know, any of those stimulus. If you're happy, those stimuli are generally encoded as positive. So when you encounter them again, it triggers a feeling of happiness or contentment. If you are unhappy, or if those stimuli make you unhappy, they become associated with distress. So when you encounter them, it either triggers feelings of distress or it triggers distressful memories, which triggers your feelings of distress. Emotions are simply surges of neurochemicals and physical reactions in response to those stimuli in a particular context based on prior learning and schema. So let's unpack that for a minute. Surges of neurochemicals, norepinephrine, dopamine, serotonin, GABA, uh, acetylcholine, all of those are neurochemicals. And depending on what balance your neurochemicals are in, you're going to feel different ways. Now your body secretes those neurochemicals when the HPA axis is activated or when the vagus nerve is activated in response to your perception and in response to your awareness of stimuli in your environment. So if you see a snake, for example, in your environment, your that stimuli is going to be registered and your body is going to secrete appropriate neurochemicals. Uh, the other day, my daughter was letting the dogs out and this little rat snake or chicken snake, I don't know what you call it, just harmless little snake, but this little baby snake dropped off the door frame and about fell on top of her. Now that triggered an anxiety response because it was unexpected. When she's outside on the farm, she expects to run into snakes, so it doesn't trigger a stress response in her. But, which is why it's important to recognize that context is somewhat important. But those stimuli trigger what we call schema. And schema are shorthand. Schema are files that your brain has that allows you to anticipate what to expect based on prior learning. You have a schema about doctor's offices, for example. 
based on prior experiences, you've written this little uh, Cliff's Notes version of when I go to the doctor's office, generally, this is what I can expect to have happen. Uh, schema help us anticipate. Unfortunately, these schema that allow us to kind of go about our daily activities without having to think too much and help us be aware of what's going on, they form what we call our default mode network or other term for it is our autopilot. And when we're on autopilot, we are acting and reacting based on prior learning experiences, not necessarily based on what's going on in the present moment. Now let's talk about this. Um, we'll use a good example. For example, um, I love animals. And I've always been around animals. I've always loved animals. And I'm the one that'll walk up to the dog on the street and go, Oh, come here, little puppy. Um, not knowing, you know, him from Adam's house cat, but as long as he's not like foaming at the mouth and looking like Cujo, I'm probably going to try to figure out where it belongs. Now, those are my uh, default schema. That's my autopilot because my interactions with dogs have always, almost always, been very positive. However, I'm not taking into account the current context. You know, what's going on? Do I know this dog? And so should I assume, you know, I'm making assumptions. I'm, I have expectations of how this dog is going to behave based on my prior experiences. But is it really realistic to expect that every dog is going to behave like Toto? Probably not. Once a schema is formed, it's written into your story. And I talk about our lives as being an ongoing narrative, ongoing story, saga, mini series, whatever you want to call it. But once something has happened, it's sort of like an episode in a television series and it stays there forever. And what happened in that series is likely going to impact the way that character reacts in future episodes. Each time you encounter stimuli in the future, it may trigger similar emotional responses and any new stimuli may also be integrated. So let's look at this from a trauma-based perspective instead of the happy doggy ex example. You experience a trauma, whatever that trauma is, and the sights, smells, sounds, even sensations, you know, if it's cold or if it's hot, all of that your brain takes in. When you are in that fight or flight mode, your brain is more aware and hypervigilant and encoding stimuli. That way it can be more prepared to protect you in the future. Well, that's great. Except a lot of those stimuli probably occur in multiple other very benign settings. So you've experienced this trauma, you have recovered from it, you know, you've moved past it, whatever you want to say. And, you know, a few months later, you're in an old house and there's a similar smell to the smell that occurred during your trauma. All of a sudden, you start becoming acutely more aware of other similar stimuli. It's like, I know that smell. Oh, this looks similar to what happened, what was going on when I was in the middle of my trauma. Um, I'm hearing similar sounds like creaking of boards. Oh my gosh. 
So now old houses may make you anxious because it triggers the memories of that trauma and may trigger a flashback. So now that trauma, that trauma has become associated with old houses and you know, later on you're in a store and encounter someone that reminds you of the offender that, you know, was involved in your trauma. Oh my gosh. So now that triggers a flashback in that store and it may not be potent enough to necessarily uh, make you afraid to go back into that store, but it can make you more on edge or more uneasy when you go into that store the next time. And if you encounter that somebody that reminds you of the, the offender the next time, then it's probably going to be written into your schema that stores are now also unsafe places and stores will trigger flashbacks. So you can see how very quickly stimuli can become generalized and you can start experiencing um, triggers and flashbacks and dysphoric or unpleasant emotions in multiple situations that seem somewhat unrelated to the trauma. You know, another example, and I've used this one before, uh, so a lot of you will recognize it, hawks. My mother used to be uh, an avid bird watcher. And when she was in hospice care, she saw a hawk fly past her window and she commented on it and she couldn't remember that the word hawk and she thought she had just learned it. And so that was a very pivotal moment in my interaction with her towards the end of her life. And now I'll be out driving and I'll see a hawk flying off of a power line and it throws me back to that moment. And I have that feeling of melancholy for half a second. You know, it's been a while since she passed. And I know that that feeling is related to that particular stimuli, to seeing that hawk. If the experience contradicts your schema, then you experience cognitive dissonance. So we'll go back to the dog example again, because that's a pretty easy one for most people to conceptualize. If you know, I'm expecting the dog to be all sweet and nice and want love and treats. And it actually starts growling at me and maybe even lunging at me. That doesn't fit with my expectation. So it causes confusion or what psychologists call cognitive dissonance. This new information now must either be altered to fit the schema. I must find a reason for why the dog behaved the way it did, not because it's mean, not because I scared it, but something else. Um, or I need to alter the schema to include new information. Not all dogs are friendly. To alter your response to stimuli, to alter that schema requires overriding your autopilot or your default mode network. And that's where journaling comes in. Yeah, I'm, I'm getting to the point here. Becoming the editor of your own story, looking back over a situation and asking yourself, okay, this is what happened. You know, you're narrating what happened in that episode. Was there actually a threat? 
and how do you want your character to respond in the future in similar situations a few examples we have responses to stimuli wherever we go unknown stimuli you know you can encounter situations where there are unknowns that happen and you actually have a schema for that how you handle the unknown curiosity think babies and toddlers babies haven't experienced most of the things that you've experienced so their world is a relative unknown to them how do they respond often with curiosity toddlers the same way and and we all have been around toddlers who've been going through the why stage why is the sky blue why do dogs bark why does this happen they're curious they hear a dog bark and they want to know why it's an unknown stimulus and they want to understand it they want to figure out how, what to write in their little schema cliff notes some people experience excitement now remember excitement and fear and anxiety or stress represent a very similar cocktail of neurotransmitters however your perception of the situation is what differs with excitement like starting a new job or a new school if you're looking forward to it if you feel safe going into it then you're going to label that as excitement um, if you are already feeling unsafe then an unknown stimulus going starting a new school may trigger fear or anger or irritability and sometimes the other stimuli stimuli in the environment may be so dominating that you ignore unknown stimuli think about if you've ever gone into an environment a school a job a church a meeting whatever and you were so focused on what you were there for you didn't notice the pictures on the wall or you didn't notice something else and you came back a week two weeks a month later or something when you were less stressed when you were more relaxed when the stimuli weren't unknown and your brain started picking up on all these things that you had missed before you know that's kind of the interesting thing so we have different reactions to unknown stimuli and again a lot of it has to do with our underlying perception of safety if we don't feel safe to begin with if we don't feel secure to begin with then when we're presented with something unknown it's probably going to trigger fight or flee known stimuli things that you've experienced before things that you have a schema for like loss or failure or rejection you're going to respond to that in a relatively predictable way you know how you generally respond for example if you interview for a job and you don't get it or if you take a test and you fail it likewise there are other good stimuli like ice cream and rainbows you know how you respond to those things if you see those or you taste those or experience those and they trigger happiness so your default mode kicks in and goes hey ice cream that's a good thing let's get excited or if you're lactose intolerant you know not the same reaction 
But emotions, again, are labels that we assign to that neurochemical cocktail that our body produces as a response to stimuli in the environment based on our prior learning and sometimes our current interpretation of the situation. Why are emotions important? A lot of people want to get rid of their anger, their depression, their anxiety, their stress. All right. We don't want to feel that way all the time, but emotions are really important. We don't want to get rid of them. We want to learn how to live in harmony with them. Just like I don't love torrential rainstorms. However, if we didn't have rain, we wouldn't have plants and that would be a big problem. So let's talk about seven general categories of emotions. Anger. And in this category, I put irritation, rage, disgust, resentment, guilt, which is anger at yourself, jealousy, and envy, which are often anger at somebody else for having something that you want. Anxiety, in this category, I put stress, worry, and fear. And there's probably others that can go in there. But anger and anxiety are the emotions that we assign to the fight or flee response. Why do we have them? In order to help us stay safe in their responses to threats. Now they may not be actual threats. They may be things we perceive as threats. Um, and I've used the example before of uh, smoke alarms. Sometimes my smoke alarm in my house will go off, especially if we have the windows open. And it doesn't necessarily mean that there is even smoke. Definitely doesn't necessarily mean that there's a fire, but sometimes it goes off. It's a false positive. And our anger or our anxiety can be a false positive based on our prior learning, based on our schema, our Cliff's notes for what to expect. We may react to stimuli in uh, with anger or anxiety in order to protect ourselves because we expect that there is going to be a threat. We want to change that to we expect that there might be a threat, but we want to explore it. Anger and anxiety are there to keep us safe when they are accurate. When they're inaccurate, then we can work on reprogramming them. Depression can be considered sadness, grief, burnout, apathy. When somebody feels depressed, they are fatigued. Nothing really makes them happy. There's low motivation. We've all been there at one point or another. Depression is your body's way of saying you're helpless and hopeless to change something or you're out of gas. You've just been too stressed for too long and you know, it's, you're not going to continue throwing good energy after bad. But you want to explore what depression means to you. Depression is sending you a signal. As I've said before, all behavior has meaning. Well, all of our emotions are trying to tell us something and based on our prior learning. And those schema may need to be altered or rewritten for future encounters, but it's our brain's way of trying to help us predict the world. Happiness 
includes contentment, joy, elation. You know, again, you can probably add more to that category, but when we feel happy, our brain releases dopamine and endorphins and sometimes oxytocin, and it makes us want to do it again, whatever it is. And that's our body's way of saying, that's a good thing. That's involved in self-preservation. So let's do more of that. Love, compassion, plutonic love, romantic love, all of those feelings, uh, are associated with the release of oxytocin and bonding and oftentimes safety. When we feel love, when we feel safe and comforted, uh, it produces a certain neurochemical cocktail. Desire, and that's a little bit different than love. I have in there lust, determination, and motivation. So you may have a lust for life or a lust for another person or a determination to get something or a motivation. So this is more active than love, which tends to be more passive. But desire helps get us up off the sofa. And curiosity. I couldn't figure out what category to put that, so I gave it its own category. Curiosity is one of those um, emotions that we feel that encourages us to look. We don't necessarily know whether it's going to make us happy or sad, but we're curious about it. And we need to be curious. That helps us learn about life. That helps us expand our awareness of what's going on. That helps us be more aware of what's going on around us. If you walk into a room, there's a certain innate curiosity when you're walk into a room full of people you're just kind of checking how's everybody feeling what's everybody doing okay that's curiosity that's your brain saying all right what schema do i need to pull out here in order to figure out how to best respond so processing emotions the first step is becoming aware of your emotion or emotions very rarely do we experience emotions in isolation. You very rarely will experience only anger. It may be anger and depression and resentment and guilt. And you know, you can have lots of stuff that occurs. Oftentimes the first emotion that we label is kind of the tip of the iceberg. And we want to look at what's underneath, but be aware of your emotions. Ask yourself, what am I feeling emotionally right now? What labels can I, Put down where am I feeling it physically and this is an interesting question but it tells us a lot if you're feeling um, stress in your heart if you're feeling anxiety in your gut um, we feel our emotions in different places and that can help us narrow down kind of what's going on for me when I get stressed I feel it in my jaw and in my shoulders um, so being aware of your physical um, demonstration or your physical symptoms of an emotion, as well as just kind of what you label the emotion. The next step is radical acceptance and compassion. It is what it is. Don't judge yourself. If you're angry, okay. If you're anxious, okay. Even if you've been anxious about this situation six times before, and you've told yourself not to get anxious about it and you do it anyway okay 
radical acceptance and compassion fighting with it just uses up more energy I've told you all before about how uh, when the dogs bark a lot of times it startles me and triggers my stress response and we've had dogs for as long as I can remember we've only had wood floors for you know, a few years but when they get upset when they start barking it startles me and even though I know as soon as that startle is over I know everything's fine uh, I get frustrated about it sometimes I'm like why do I have to feel like I'm gonna jump out of my skin that's not compassionate that's judgmental I need to remember it is what it is I got startled okay so I can just let it go and say all right you know better luck next time um, or I can fight with it stop trying to get rid of the feeling though feelings are there to protect you or to encourage you to do things that are positive tell yourself my body is trying to help me stay safe possibly based on outdated schema inaccurate perceptions or unprocessed big T or little t trauma but it's your body's reaction then start exploring the first the last slide is a lot of stuff that you're probably going to do mentally now comes the journaling start exploring write down the triggers for that emotion or those emotions people what people in your environment triggered that places things sights smells sounds time of day or season in the present moment what triggered that emotion ask yourself why is this coming up for me now what triggered this emotion in this context at this time um, also known as where the heck did this come from or what do I associate this with so once you identify what triggered it in the present maybe you realize oh I smell that cologne <clears throat> then you can think back to when have I smelled that cologne before and what emotions did it trigger what's it related to you may smell the I walked in the other day um, uh, into a place and I smelled pipe tobacco and one of my favorite professors from college as well as one of my favorite uncles both smoke pipes and whenever you were in their vicinity you could smell that pipe tobacco so I smelled that and I noticed that I got this little half smile on my face for no apparent reason I'm like well what's that about and then I started thinking oh that reminds me of Dr. Pennypacker and my Uncle Jack and so I was associating what was triggering that sort of automatic response take some time when you're writing this down to identify as many of the triggers as possible so you're more aware of what triggers particular emotions for you sometimes we will have feelings that are associated with memories so you want to explore those memories and the associated expectations and beliefs you will stick with a smell because that's an easy one you smell a smell and it triggers this feeling of 
anxiety. Okay? Sure. Uh, so then you ask yourself, why did that smell trigger that feeling of anxiety? What memories is it bringing up? A lot of times we store trauma as reactions, not as necessarily verbal memories. Our brain does that uh, during a traumatic experience. Glutamate actually makes it harder for us to encode memories and store them and retrieve them at later times. But our brain and our amygdala and our body remembers what happened. So we may experience those feelings, but kind of be struggling for, you know, what's that associated with? I know I've felt this feeling before and it feels awful. Uh, for me, I'll give you an example. When people knock on the door, and I know that sounds really weird, but for pe when people knock on the door, it can cause me to have a stress reaction. And I'm like, well, where did that come from? Well, when I was younger, I was home during a home invasion. Okay, well, that makes sense. Um, the perpetrator knocked on the door first, probably to make sure that no adults were there that were gonna answer the door, and then came around and broke in through the sliding door. So now when I hear a knock on the door, there's a little bit of a stress response. You know, I've desensitized to it quite a bit over the years, but uh, you know, at least 20 years ago, there was a much stronger response. I've also had experiences where people have knocked on the door and have shown up to issue me subpoenas. And I hate going to court. Um, and it's always stressful to be in court. So that's another thing that triggers that fight or flight response in me. Both of them associated with knocks at the door. So now I'm like, okay, I'm starting to see why somebody knocking at the door might cause me a little bit of stress based on prior experiences. What about expectations about future distress? When somebody knocks at the door, what do I expect? Or if I had experiences where I expected the worst? And my husband was in law enforcement for his first career. And when he would be on patrol, there was always the chance that somebody could show up and knock on the door and say, something bad happened. So it was always stressful when somebody would knock on the door. So in the past, I've had multiple experiences where there was a stressful situation and multiple experiences where, or times when somebody's knocked on the door and I've expected a bad situation. So now I'm starting to understand a little bit more about why knocks at the door stress me out so much. What beliefs are associated with those thoughts and expectations? So then going back through each of those memories and asking myself, what beliefs do I have about being safe versus being a victim? What beliefs do I have about um, being in court? What beliefs do I have about my ability to be safe, to be empowered versus hopelessness or helplessness? What beliefs do I have as a result of those experiences regarding rejection or failure? Now, I had a couple of really bad 
times when I went to testify that it just it felt really unpleasant and uncomfortable so thinking back over those I can understand a little bit more about situations that may have been written into my schema about door knocking that lead me to more stress I've also never grown up in an environment where people just randomly dropped by and knocked on the door to visit they always called first or te now nowadays texted first so I associate any unexpected knock at the door with bad news or now Amazon but what do we do now that you've identified the memories and the thoughts um, associated with those memories then process each thought so you're going to look back at each thought and go okay my thoughts about death or bad outcomes happening what are the actual known facts for and against each belief in the current context no assuming no mind reading and check for extreme words either telling myself or implied so if I say every time somebody knocks at the door bad things happen well those are extreme words and I'm assuming that that's going to continue to be the case but what are the facts encouraging myself remember I've talked before about emotional valence and we remember the bad stuff we remember the threats and tend to just kind of take for granted the good things so thinking back over times that people have come to the door like Amazon and it hasn't been a bad thing and I start recognizing that okay there are some very clear at times when there have been bad things but more often than not when people come to the door it's benign it's somebody that's campaigning for political office or um you know somebody delivering a package or somebody that lost a dog in the neighborhood um so those are not bad things so that helps me get more realistic awareness of what's going on embracing the dialectics yes there are times when it's bad but there's more often than not it's going to be a very benign interaction what's the probability of a distressing outcome well I just kind of went over that more often than not the outcome is going to be benign or sometimes even good because you want whatever that's being delivered what aspects of this situation can you control in some situations you can change the situation like leave now this isn't so much the case if somebody's knocking on your door because you know you're not going to sneak out the back or something but if you are in a social situation and you're feeling threatened you're feeling uncomfortable it's triggering bad memories one of the things that you could do would be leave the situation don't go into situations where you're going to feel that vulnerable you can change your reaction and this can be called desensitization or counter conditioning however you want to call whatever you want to call it but basically it's setting up a situation so you encounter that stimulus in positive or benign circumstances for knocking at the door I could encourage my friends to start coming over more often and knocking at the door uh, I could go through a variety of things so I have more instances 
of opening the door and it being a positive than being a stressful situation. Prevent or mitigate it in the future. I guess I could put a do not disturb sign on the door. Uh, that wouldn't be really helpful. But there are some times where you could prevent or mitigate the situation in the future. Or, and, or live in the and. Accept that, okay, sometimes people are going to knock at the door. Or sometimes this situation is going to happen. And it will feel uncomfortable. And... As soon as it's over, I can go on about my life. I may have anxiety for a moment, but it will pass. All of these things are things that you can, that you can journal. So what are you feeling? What triggered that feeling? What trigger, what emotions, I'm sorry, what memories, uh, are those triggers associated with that are causing those emotions? What Thoughts are associated with those memories. Thoughts of being powerless, unsafe, rejected, etc. And then processing those thoughts, going back over each thought and saying, okay, is this thought based in fact or is this thought based on my expectations and my assumptions for what was going to happen? And then what can I do to handle the situation so the next time it happens if it was in an inaccurate response so the next time it happens I don't react as strongly there's also what I call present-based beliefs you may have a belief in the present that people cannot be trusted <clears throat> And yes, that probably was formed from being betrayed in the past, but you may be thinking um, people in my life right now cannot be trusted. Nobody can ever be trusted ever. Well, you hear the extreme words there. Same thing. Examine the facts supporting the thought in the present context. Is it true that nobody in my life is trustworthy? What are the facts against the thought in the present context? What aspects of this belief can I can control? Can I um, nurture particular relationships? Can I set better boundaries? What is the probability that this person cannot be trusted in this context? Some people are very trustworthy in certain contexts, but you wouldn't necessarily trust them to watch your dog for a week or something. Um, so what is the probability that this person can be trusted in this context? How does holding on to this belief in its current form, how does continuing to tell myself that people cannot be trusted, impact my ability to have a rich and meaningful life? Another memory. This is that memory-based beliefs. You may have the belief that my parent hated me or was never proud of me. What are the facts supporting that belief, supporting that memory in when you look back on it? We always say that hindsight is 2020. Is there an alternative explanation for why the your parent, you believe that your parent was never proud of you? You know, did they not tell you that they were proud of you enough? Okay, it happens. Maybe that's not how they were raised 
or maybe they were so overwhelmed with their own stuff that they couldn't even focus on you it's not that they didn't love you they just they couldn't so was it actually about you what are the facts against the thought in the memory context now what does that mean so looking back to that time when you were a child when you were living at home when you felt like your parent was never proud of you what are the facts against that did they ever give you any indication in their own way that they were proud of you or that they loved you what impacts did having that belief have on you writing that down you know if you if you grew up believing that your parent hated you how did that impact your choices in the way you behaved your career your relationships how you feel about yourself how does holding on to this belief in its current form impact your ability to have a rich and meaningful life a lot of times our memories that are formed when we're children our schema that are formed when we're children don't get modified and a lot of times schema and the way we understand the world as children is not a hundred percent accurate because we don't understand and I've, I've gone through this a lot with people that I've worked with and their their parents were in active addiction as children they didn't understand why the parent chose the addiction over them or why the parent was non-responsive to them as adults they were often able to look back and go yeah you know my parent just was in agony was struggling didn't have it all together whatever they want to say but recognizing that it wasn't about them it was about their parents deficiencies it's also important you know I've talked up till now about processing stressful emotions what triggers anxiety what triggers anger what triggers depression what triggers grief but it's also important to process pleasant feelings and I encourage you to do this in your journal with regularity what are my triggers for happiness for curiosity for contentment for love and you know, all those things when I see those triggers or when I when I feel those feelings um, what triggers them and what memories do those triggers bring up what are my expectations about future happiness based on those memories what thoughts are associated with those memories or expectations they may include thoughts about being safe thoughts of hope and empowerment thoughts of love acceptance success uh, we had a um, well we have several but we we found a, a nest of baby bunnies on our property uh, this weekend when we were working in in the uh, garden and it made me happy it was thoughts of hope that these little bunnies would grow up and stay around my yard so I could see their little cottontails and yes I'm back to the whole cottontail thing I love little bunnies um, thoughts about being safe about being able to provide an environment that's safe for them because seeing the wildlife the squirrels and the uh, the rabbits and stuff in, in, in my yard is very um, calming to me 
so it triggers feelings of happiness and contentment and joy for whatever reason now i know and i work harder on creating situations in my environment that promote feelings of happiness so around our yard we have brush piles and things you know we have seven acres so we've got a little room to move but the brush piles are where a lot of critters will make their dens and i've created an environment and i'm continuing to try to create a more hospitable environment for all wildlife including you know honeybees and bumblebees and all those sorts of things so i can experience that uh, when i go outside and that is good for me so figuring out what works for you what helps make you happy and how can you integrate those triggers into your day-to-day -day life to help you feel safer more empowered and just plain joyous emotions are neurochemical reactions prompted by your nervous system to help you stay safe often the causes are based on outdated schema that cause inaccurate perceptions or thoughts a lot of times our stress reactions are based on things that may have been stressful in the past in other situations or when we were younger but we're different now we're older we're stronger we're wiser reducing distress requires understanding what's causing your feelings and remembering you can't get rid of your feelings you can change your reaction to situations that unne unnecessarily prompt distress likewise processing positive feelings can help you identify ways to increase those and embrace the dialectics that means recognize that yes there is bad but there's also good and I want to live in a world that embraces the and recognizing that distress is inevitable 